Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest, and I see a lot of guests in the chat room tonight, and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or blog, Talk Radio. Well, tonight we will hear about the Civil War pension file of Philip McQuarta of Woodville, Wilkeson County, Mississippi, that provides revealing information about his family with special guests, Alvin Blakes. Alvin Blakes is a lifelong organizer and community worker who has been researching African history since he was a teenager and has traveled to Africa, Europe, the Caribbean, excuse me, folks, and all over the United States to pursue his studies. He has researched his family's history from Woodville, Mississippi, back to the late 1700s in the eastern United States. He is a member of the Dallas Genealogical Society's African American Genealogy Interest Group, and he graduated with a bachelor's and master's of mechanical engineering degree from Howard University's School of Engineering. Currently, he is the manager of the Dallas Area Rapid Transit Agency's Book Bus Fleet Engineering Group. And I want to welcome all of the listeners from Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas who are on tonight to hear Alvin Blakes. So let me give a warm welcome to Alvin Blakes to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Alvin. Thank you, Bernice. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you so much. And, Alvin, I am looking forward to you sharing with us what you have uncovered about your family through the Civil War pension papers of Philip McQuerta. So please tell us about those papers. Okay, Bernice, first I'll start off by saying I'm from Baton Rouge. Uh, My family is from Woodville. Both my parents were from Woodville, Mississippi. Uh, Woodville is about 60 miles 
uh, northwest of Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge is about 60 miles uh, east of New Orleans. And I'm saying that because those are pivotal places uh, in the family history. And both my parents were from Bad- from uh, Woodville. All four of my grandparents were from Woodville, Mississippi. All eight of my great-grandparents were from Mississippi. And so far, I've been able to research 12 of my great-great-grandparents from Woodville, Mississippi, and 11 great-great-great-grandparents, and two great-great-great-great-grandparents. So my family um, was from one location. So when I look at uh, records, I have to research the whole area. If I look at plantation records, I have to search the whole plantation because it's going to tell me uh, who married who from which family in Woodville, Mississippi. And so the the research is very compact, but it's also very broad because there's so much ground to cover. So I've been doing research on uh, my family for about 18 years, and I've uh, researched several different uh, uh, branches of my family. But this particular branch of family of McQuaders, I had did not up to a year, a year ago, I did not have – uh, a lot of information on them. All I had was an 1880 census record and a couple of names. So um, when I started, uh, when I started looking for, uh, at one point I started looking for military records, and I could not find anything. And finally, I found a pension index card with the name of Philip Brown, alias Philip McQuader. And another card that said Philip McQuader, alias Philip Brown. And that's when things really got going. And that was about October of last year. At that point, uh, I knew I wanted to pull uh, the military records and make sure that this was, that Philip McQuader was indeed Philip Brown. And I wanted to know why. The things I wanted to know right off were why he had the name of Philip Brown and um and the story behind him, and I was told at that time that in these pension files, sometimes you have community members in, in those files. Sometimes you have uh, children or other relatives in those files. So I was very anxious to see what those um, files, what was contained in those pension files. So I started digging around, and when, once I got the index numbers, I was told to call someone in D.C. named Bernice Bennett, who will guide you through it and will be able to pull the files for you. And that's where... You come in, Bernice. Well, I tell you, you have had an amazing file to review. Tell us just how big was this file? The file was about um, uh, 100 pages, uh, and inside the file, some of some of the pages were uh, two-sided. So there's about 45 to 50 documents inside the, the uh, pension file. Um, there were three files, as I said, on the original index card. Uh, there was a invalid file, which would be uh, the soldier himself. There was a widow's file. And then there was a minor's file. And on my folder, there was a minor's file, but there was also a second um, independent field investigation done by the Army. And I'll get into that as I go through uh, what's in the files. So I really had four files. Okay. So take us through those files. Okay. 
So the soldier's file was the first file, the soldier's claim, and it contained the testimony of Philip Brown at that time. And the file said that Philip Brown served in the 81st Regiment U.S. Colored Troops. It said that he enlisted on July 13th of 1863, and he was discharged on December 4th of 1865, and he filed for a pension application on August 11th of 1890. That's one of the items that was in the file. In the file, it said that he was, um, uh, let's see what else. In the file, he said he served under a Colonel Blackington, and he applied for the pension on 2nd of August, 1890. One of the most interesting documents I've ever seen was also in the file, and that was the surgeon's certificate. Now, the surgeon's certificate was a physical examination uh, on the soldier, in this case, Philip Brown, and it revealed his state of, uh, he, he filed the, the claim for rheumatism or arthritis, but I want to just read what the surgeon's file says. Okay. It, it says that Philip Brown, this is a surgeon's certificate, May 20th, 1891, in the service for over two years, was in good health during time of service. In 1866, he contracted rheumatism and have suffered more or less since, especially in damp or cloudy weather have suffered in left side with pain and shortness of breath, at times incapacitancy for manual labor. Upon examination, we find the following objective conditions. Pulse rate 85, respiration 18, temperature 99, height 5 feet 4 and a half inches, weight 132 pounds, age 49. Nutrition muscular development, moderate, skin soft and flabby, tongue nominal in size and coated white centrally, nasal passages inflamed and ulcerated, fossies inflamed, heart apex beat normal and plainly evident on palpation and inspection, mitral regurgitation with increased cardiac action, pulse sitting 85, standing 88, after brisk exercise 100, lungs and other viscera normal, other than heart lexion, no physical evidence of rheumatism, no evidence no enlargement, no tenderness, no stiffness or limitation of motion, no other disability found to exist. He is, in our opinion, entitled to 418th rating of the disability caused by, caused by heart disease, zero for that caused by rheumatism, and 218th for that caused by chronic cholera. So he was given a partial pension. The main... Um, in all that language, I, I looked it up. The mitral regurgitation was the main disorder, and that's a heart valve problem where your heart skips a beat. Mm-hmm. The other was basically inflammation that he had uh, in various places. And he had rheumatism, but the doctor did not prove he had rheumatism. The doctor recommended he get uh, 418th of his pension, and at that time that was about $8 a month pension. So that was filed on August 11, 1890. So right away we see a, a document here that lists his age, size, weight, and his physical condition after serving in the Civil War for, for two years. That would have been 1865 when he 
uh, mustered out of the service, and this is an 1891 examination. So and Patrick, how old was he in 1890? He was, in 1890, he was 49. Uh, 1891, he listed age as 49, so he was born approximately 1844. Okay. There are different places where the date may vary one day or another, but he uh, was born around 1844. Mm-hmm. So that was the soldier's claim. Now, the widow's claim was the next file. And these, it took me quite a while to organize these files. They had uh, to make meaning of these files, but the widow's claim. And why was there a widow's claim? Because the first document in the widow's claim will tell us why. It's a document from a Dr. C.E. Ketchins. And I think everybody from uh, Woodville, Mississippi, has heard the name Ketchins. He was a medical doctor in the 1800s. He had a son who was a medical doctor until the 1900s. But this is an affidavit that Dr. Ketchins signed. It says... Uh, Date of death of Philip Brown and cause of his death. Philip Brown died on the 6th day of May, 1899. The cause of death was intestinal obstruction. That's what the doctor said. So that's verification that he died May 6, 1899. And this is the first document that's in his in the widow's file. Now, also in the Willis file are several other affidavits that she's writing to um, to uh, apply for her pension. And some of these are very interesting, very intriguing. One is an affidavit from Charlie Davis that says that I, Charles Davis, know that Patsy Brown died on the 24th of December, 1899, and that I was present at the burial and officiated as pastor said burial. She died in Wilson County, Mississippi, and was there buried. So she died. He died in May 6, 1899. She died six months later in December of 1999. So this is her application for pension. She did not live to get the pension. And inside that file are other, um, other important testimony. Now, Charlie Davis, when he wrote that, he was her pastor. He wrote that when he was 46, and this is 1890, so he's, that will give you his age. And what was her name again? Her name was Patsy, Patsy. Brown okay. at that time. Patsy Brown at that time. But I have, uh, and, uh, later I'll be able to, to figure out from the pension file what her maiden name was before she became Patsy. They, they, Patsy Brown, because he served as Philip Brown, but her name really right. was Patrick McQuader because that's the name he took uh, after the Civil War. Here's another one that says, this is from Morris Bailey. Morris Bailey was 73 in 1890, so Morris Bailey was born about 18, I don't have my calculator with me, 1827, I believe. 1827. Now, who is Morris Bailey? Morris Bailey was was just uh, someone who did an affidavit. Okay. Uh, he did an affidavit. All these are affidavits. There's a stack of affidavits in each one of these files. 
his testimony says, I know of my own personal knowledge that Philip Brown and Patsy Brown were slaves belonging to Wilson Brown of Wilson County, Mississippi. And about the year 1856, as such, slaves moved into the same house and lived together as man and wife. Although, uh, although, what does it say? As far as, as far as I know, no legal ceremony was performed, being an ordinary slave marriage, as was customary in those times. I know of my own knowledge that they lived together as man and wife before Philip Brown enlisted in the U.S. Colored Infantry, and that such relations so continued after his return from the Army. Until the time of his death, I also know of my own knowledge that he had two children by this marriage before the breaking out of the Civil War and a number of other children after his return from the Army. I know also of my own knowledge that Philip Brown and Patsy Brown are now deceased. So that's the widow's vow, and that tells a lot of information from someone who was born in 1827, uh, was on the same plantation with them. He said they were on the plantation of Wilson Brown in Wilson County, and that they were married, he said, about 1856. And look at that number. That's not exactly the right date, but that would have been 43 years afterwards. He was 73, so that's, that's a pretty close enough uh, estimate, as we'll find out. So that would okay, be the there's a file. question asking about the children, and I know you're going to get to that. What about yes, the children? Yes, mm-hmm. Okay, the children, at that time they had uh, 14 children, and the minors claim uh, at that time any child under 16 was considered a minor. So the once the parents died in 1899, then the minor children uh, had uh, laid claim to the to the pension. So there were three minor children at the time, and one of uh, a son-in-law of uh, Philip and Patsy McQuader, Tobias Stewart, acted as the guardian for them, and he filed the application for pension. So there were three of them uh, claiming the pension because those there was only three under sixteen. Okay. 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 So the minor children's claim, and it was first filed on March twentieth of nineteen hundred. Inside the minor's claim um, were again several affidavits testifying. Um, who the mother and father of the minor children were. It also asked several questions about when they were married, if they were married. Um, it asked questions about the ages of all the children and anything they could remember. So inside that minor's claim um, in 1900, um, they were not able to prove that the children were the children of uh, Philip McQuader and Patsy McQuader. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, the person who filed for the claim, who acted as the guardian, he died in that time frame. So they were not given the pension when they filed in 1908. And so by 1904, as a document in the pension file that said they were not granted pension, the pension, in fact, it said because no one acted as their guardian. 
So I'm not sure what happened there. But uh, the pension was not granted uh, when it was first filed. So what happened was there was a field investigation in 1930. There was another investigation done uh, to try to get the pension. So from New Orleans, the uh, U.S. Army field representative was in New Orleans. Uh-huh. Came into, he sent a, sent a letter to the post office there in Woodville, and he got the address of all the minor children and said that he was coming to interview them. At the same time, he came to interview neighbors. He came to interview some other, other children. And he came to interview one sister, Philip McQuaid, who was still alive. So he would catch the train into town. Again, New Orleans was 60 miles away. He was stationed in New Orleans. But he would catch the train on a certain day, meet them there in Wilson County, and he would do interviews. This was in 1930. So this is about 30 years later. About 30 years later, that's right. Wow. 30 years later. And um, so obviously the children, the minor children, would be over the age of 16 then. So this is going to be a pension for, by 1930, retroactive, meaning they were due pension from the time he died, if they were under 16, until they reached the age of 16. That's what this, that's what the minor's pension is now for, because they're past that age now, but they were they're due back pay, back pension for uh, when the claim was first filed. So I will, I want to read just a couple of these, and uh, some of them are kind of long, so get a drink of water here, but I think they're very they're very instructive of what um, what uh, the, the children and the, the witnesses are testifying. The first one is a daughter, Caroline McQuader. I was born February 28, 1876. Occupation, farming. PO address, Woodville, Mississippi. I live on Mr. Lanehart's plantation. I am the widow of Tobias Stewart. So Tobias Stewart was the one who filed the Minus pension originally in 1900, and he passed shortly after that. My father was Philip McQuaid, and my mother was Patsy McQuaid. I don't know what place I was born on, but was raised on the Chambers Place, now known as the Lanehart Place. To the best of my knowledge and belief, I was born February 28, 1876. My parents were living together at my earliest recollection, and they lived together until my father died. They were never separated or divorced. I do not know when or where my parents were married, and I don't know whether they were married before or after the Civil War. My father rendered military service during the Civil War, but I do not know what company and regiment he served in. I've heard my father say that he served under the name of Philip Brown. As long as I knew him, he was known as Philip McQuader, and I've never personally known him to use the surname of Brown. I think my father said that his right name was McQuader, but that his master changed his name to Brown. I don't know who his master was or who his father was. He has no brothers living that I know of, but he has one sister living, and her name is Millie Turner. She lives on the Ford Place, the other side of Woodville. My mother's father was named Alfred Williams, and her mother was named Sophie Williams. All of my parents, brothers, and sisters are dead. My father died May 6, 1899, on the Chambers Place. So this is one of these uh, depositions uh, Bernice, where I hit the hit the ceiling because she named her mother's mother and father, 
Alfred Williams wow. and Sophie Williams. So her mother was Patsy Williams. And that kind of information to come in a pension file probably would not have come to me any other way. And that's one of that's just one of the depositions. Okay, so okay. you need to read a couple more. Right, Absolutely. To, okay, I'm just going to read a couple more, but these are important. So Philip McQuader was the son of Philip McQuader, who was the son of Philip McQuader. So he's the third Philip McQuader um, from Woodville. I was born on August 10th, 1872, occupation farming, PO address, care of Mr. A.W. Lanehart, Woodville, Mississippi. I live on Mr. Lanehart's plantation, seven miles southwest of Woodville. My father was Philip McQuaid and my mother was Patsy Williams. I always heard my father say that he rendered military service during the Civil War. And at the time he died, he was drawing a pension. He said that he served under the name of Philip Brown. His master was Mr. Tom Brown. And my father was known as Philip Brown up to his enlistment, and he enlisted under that name. He told me that his birth name was McQuader, but that when he was sold to the Browns, he used the name of Brown. He was raised on the steel place, which was owned by Mr. Tom Brown. I don't know what my father's height was, but he was a short man and small. So far as I know, he was born and reared here in Wilkerson County, Mississippi. I do not know what company and regiment he served in, and his discharge and pension papers have been destroyed by fire. I do not know who his officers were but I heard him say that he served with one Sidney Hunt. His widow, Sarah Hunt, lives in Natchez. My parents were married in slavery by their master. I suppose they were married on the steel place. I haven't any idea as to what year they were married. However, they were married and had one child before my father enlisted in the Army. That child was Suki, and she living and she is living yet. Her name now is Suki Payne and she lives on Mr. Walt Ferguson's place. Her husband is Charlie Payne. Suki is totally deaf, and it will be useless to see her. She cannot read and write. I think she is about 66 years old. So I'll stop right there. Now, Suki Payne was my great-grandmother, and Charlie Payne was my great-grandfather. And she was the oldest child of Phil McQuader, and this is her brother, the, uh, the younger Phil McQuader, uh, saying that she was deaf in... Uh, her later years And this is something that I did not know I asked my mother She did not know And so She probably went deaf Late in life But Several of her sisters And brothers Described her In 1930 As being deaf And she passed in 1931 And you said These were your Great grandparents These were my great grandparents Uh, One of the first Documents I had On my family Was a picture Of my great grandmother Grandma Suki, they called her, and her son, uh, Cleveland Payne. And in addition to the 1880 census, all I really had was that one picture of her and my mother describing her and all of the McQuaders as being very dark-skinned, uh, you know, looking looking, looking African, like they were African-born. That's what I remember about the McQuaders. Uh, no one else ever said anything about uh, Civil War or any of the other stuff that have come to find in this pension files. So I do have a picture of her and my grandmother. She's about 60 uh, when the picture was taken. And there's a question out of the chat. Now, we're still talking about your family from Woodville, Mississippi. Absolutely. All of my family is from Woodville, Mississippi. <laughs> Everybody. Yes. Okay. 
Everybody's from Woodville, Mississippi. Everybody. Well, That's right. Well, uh, I want you to read more, but we're going to take a quick break and come back. This is just fascinating information. I'm hoping that everyone is really understanding just how valuable the information is in those Civil War pension files. So quick break, and we'll be right back. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. Well, you have been listening to Alvin Blakes share the valuable information he found out about his family in the Civil War pension files of Philip McQuerta. So, Alvin, back to you so that you can continue to share with us all of this fascinating information. Okay. So I'll, I'll continue with the uh, Phil McQuarta file because his is, he names all of the children in the family. His is a very detailed file, uh, deposition that he gave uh, to the field representative concerning the minor's pension. The next child after Sookie was Eliza. She was born two years after my father was discharged from the service. Eliza is still living. The next child was named Emma. She was born a year and a half after Eliza. Emma died two years ago. That would have been 1928. I was I was the next child after Emma, and I was born August 10, 1872, on the old Leatherman Place, Wilson County, Mississippi. Caroline was the next child. She was born on the Leatherman Place about a year and a half after I was born. Caroline is the widow of Tope Stewart, and she lives near my home. The next child was Millie Ann, and she was born about a year and a half after Caroline on the Leatherman Place. The next child was Jerry, and he was born right behind Millie Ann. He lives in New Orleans. The next child was Minerva. I do not know the year of her birth, but my mother said that she was 18 months different in the ages of all the older children. Minerva died about 25 years ago. The next child was Hattie. I don't know the date or year of her birth, but my mother told me that she was just one and a half years difference in the ages of the children until it got down to the last three children, and there was more of a difference in their ages. 
Hattie died about 12 years ago at Hill House, Mississippi, up in the Delta. Next child was Taylor Brown. I don't know the date or the year of his birth, but I think he was about eight years old when my father died. My father died May 6, 1899. Next child was Hannah. I don't know the date of, or year of her birth, but she was five years old when my father died. She's never been married. She lives on the Woodland Place. Next child was Amanda. I don't know the date or year of her birth, but when my father died, she was a baby, only about 18 months old. Perhaps she was older than that. I don't have any sort of record of dates of birth of any of my brothers and sisters, and I do not recall the months, day, or year that they were born. I only recall the date of my own birth. So that was Phil McQuaid's testimony. It goes on, but he is naming each one of his sisters and brothers. There were 14 of them. One had passed, so there was 13 sisters and brothers. Now, the final one I want to read is uh, one that also was very instrumental in me finding my family all the way back as far as I did, and I'll get to that later. But it was Millie Turner. She was described earlier as his half-sister. Millie Turner, as it turns out, uh, was born about 1850. But this is her testimony. I don't know my age, but I was born in slavery. And at the time of the Civil War, I was a young girl. I have no regular occupation. I live with my daughter. I was born and reared on Steel Plantation, Wilkinson County, Mississippi. I lived in Wilson County all my life. I came to Baton Rouge a few weeks ago. Philip McQuaid was my half-brother. We had the same mother but different fathers. I don't know who Philip's father was, but my father was named Grundy Jackson, I believe. My mother was named Sookie Jackson. I am the only surviving member of my family. Philip McQuaid's owner was Thomas Brown, and he was also my owner. Philip was reared on the steel place. Philip used the name of Philip Brown during slavery, and after the name, and after the name, he took the name of Philip McQuader. I guess Philip McQuader was the name of his father, but I don't know that for a fact. Philip McQuader had only one wife, and her name was Patsy. I don't know her maiden name. Philip and Patsy were married during slavery. I couldn't tell you who married them. I was not a witness to the marriage. They were married on the steel place. They were man and wife when I first knew them. So those are the three I will read. But in those three, there is so much information. Now, Millie Turner was the half-sister of, of Philip McQuader. She said her mother was Sookie Jackson, and her father was Grundy Jackson. And that's when, after reading these, these depositions over and over and over, um, I realized that from a genealogical standpoint, they had really – reveal everything I needed to know to do my research. They said who the last plantation owner was. They said they were on the steel plantation. Um, they said uh, who the children of the owner was. They told who the mother of uh, Philip McQuaid was, mother and father. And they told who the mother and father of his wife, Patsy Williams, were. So that is what you call a genealogical gateway. That's what I call a genealogical gateway. That is everything I needed to start uh, my research back into the plantation records. All now, right. That was everything I needed. But when the field representative completed his work, he did a synopsis of, and this, this will be in the pension files, if someone does a, a pension file, then they have to summarize uh, 
um, what the findings were. And so it's just interesting to read, and I'll read just a couple paragraphs of what he said. He gave the uh, subject as the pension files, the reference. This claim was referred to for special investigation for some inquiry into the manner of the marital relations of the parents of the children. So they're testifying in their deposition what they knew about the marital relations of their mother and father, or in this case, their sister, or the, their brother, or Millie Turner. And he's trying to find were they really married, were these really the children, what ages were they, were they really um, minors at the time both parents died. And again, those words, you can hear, you can kind of hear when they're speaking and he's writing it down, you can tell which part, uh, you can tell some of the words are not their words, they're speaking but the field representative is taking the notes because they're not, uh, at that time, they're not writing. They don't know how to write. They signed with the X, which said that they did not know how to write. So he's interpreting their answers. Anyway, what he said was he has a, a section called Manner of Testifying. The three claimants named above testified in an apparently truthful manner, but they are illiterate and ignorant, and their reputation for truth is only fair. Philip McQuader and Caroline Stewart appeared biased in favor of the claimants. Philip McQuaid is somewhat more intelligent than any of his brothers and sisters. Millie Turner is a very old woman and childish. Her mind seems to come and go. Her testimony is not considered reliable. The other witnesses testified in an apparently truthful and unbiased manner. They bear the average reputation for truth. So this is when I hit the ceiling again. <laughs> because they I guess told, you did. <laughs> I hit the ceiling. They have, they have told to the best of their ability Coming out, these people are, what, 15, 20 years out of total enslavement? And they testify to the best of their ability. Um, he goes on to say, it appears that the father of the children, for whom Pitcher's claim was known as Philip McQuader, some of the witnesses state that he was owned by Mr. Thomas Brown and that they always understood that he rendered service on the name of Philip Brown. Deponent Alex Stewart states that when he first knew Philip McQuader, he was using the name of Philip Brown. Is the only witness who personally knew the father of the children to use the name of Philip Brown. The evidence herewith tends to show that Philip Brown and Philip McQuaid were identical and that he is a man who rendered the service on which the claim is based. It appears that the soldier began living with his wife, Patsy, during slavery, and they lived, he lived with her to the date of his death. They were not separated at any time except during the time he was in the service. It is alleged that he was the father of all of Patsy's children, and they never had a child by any other woman. And the final paragraph I read for you is, he says, it is alleged that the family record was destroyed by fire and that no one now has a record of or memorandum of the dates of birth of these children. Public records of birth were not kept until 1912 in the state of Mississippi. Consequently, there would be no public record of the births of these claimants. There seems to be no way in which the dates of birth as given in the original papers can be verified. The claimants and most of the witnesses are literate and dense. They are all plantation Negroes with little or no conception of time. Date means nothing to them. The evidence indicates that the children for whom pension is claimed were in fact the offspring of the soldier and that the widow claimant owned no property except a little livestock at the date of filing of this claim, August 21st, 1899. Few Negroes of her time owned anything, and there is no doubt but that the widow claimant was dependent upon her own labors or upon her children for her support. And this is the recommendation. Uh, he did give a recommendation for consideration of the pendant, 
and this was M.W. W. Vaughtman, Hill representative. So that was his interpretation of the testimony of all of the people who gave claims, that they were illiterate and dense, that Millie Turner was old and childish, and her testimony was not reliable. Mm. So he, in my opinion, slandered her uh, in history. And my job, then, is to prove, make the argument whether or not what she said was, in fact, truthful or whether or not she was childish and dense, as he called it. So with the evidence I was presented, Bernice, uh, I began to go through the plantation records. I knew which plantation they were on. I knew who the owner was. So the first thing I did was look at the last owner, and that was Eliza Steele. They called her name Eliza Steele and searched her background, her record all the way back, who her mother, father, grandfather, all the way back to the 1700s, and see if there are records available that would tell me uh, who was on the plantation, who was on the steel plantation, what were their relation, relationship to uh, the McQuaders and to Millie Turner, and that's what I set out about a year ago to do. So it took me about, I haven't finished, but that was after a year's worth of research, I have reached a conclusion, and I'll share with you the results and how I obtained them. I reached a conclusion that Millie Turner is not childish-minded, and that she is not dense, and that they do have an accurate concept of time. Now, the concept of time on the plantation falls around seasons. It evolves around uh, when the harvest is done, when the planting is done, because there was no... Uh, when you're in slavery, your time is not your own. Your time is as a laborer in a, on a plantation situation. So um, certain things, uh, you, you, don't, you don't tell time by, by uh, a clock. You're not telling time by a calendar. You're telling time by your labor contract that you have in terms of uh, when you work, when you plant, when you harvest, when you sow seeds, um, you know, there, there could be a birth, and as you heard Phil McQuader say, uh, now he was born after slavery, but you could, he could name out who all the children were in relation to his other. Uh, they were born a year and a half. So there's a certain uh, time that uh, people who were enslaved kept, and the calendar, the time of day, the watches were all a different point of reference for them. So I'll continue with the uh, research. So Eliza Steele uh, was born Elizabeth Burden in 1805. Her parents, and this is I'm talking about the plantation owner. The parents were uh, Wilson Burden and Elizabeth Bruce. Um, She had two children, John Wilson Brown and Thomas Brown. She married I'm sorry, she married uh, She married Jesse Brown in about 1825, Then she had two children, Thomas Brown and John Wilson Brown. Jesse Brown died in 19, her father died in 1925, Jesse Brown died, died in 1833. She remarried Nathaniel Steele in 1851, and he died a few years later. So the Wilkinson County um, probate records, are huge records and they're all intact. Um, 
probate record test for the state of Mississippi, there are over 4 million uh, probate images. Wilson County, I don't know the exact number, but 4 million records in Mississippi, that's a huge number of records, and those are available to be searched. Um, a lot of them are indexed. So I was able to go through and look for the Burton records, the Brown records, and the Steele records, and put together uh, all the evidence. I would go through the records, all the transactions they would make, and try to piece together the story that Millie Turner is telling about her family. She says her mother was Sookie Jackson, her father was Grundy Jackson. Um, and so I had to piece together then what the story was. And this is what the story turned out to be. In 1835, uh, in, in the Wilson County Inventories and Accounts Book, Volume 9, 1835 to 1839, page 544, a list of slaves purchased by Elizabeth Brown, administratrix of the estate of Jesse Brown, received for said estate, Bill, oh, I'm sorry, it's Bill, but Phil, Sookie, and their children, Rose, Jane, and Catherine, purchased of William P. Burden for $3,759.63. So she purchased my family, Phil, Sookie, and the three children at that time from her father's estate, and she put uh, moved them to her husband's estate. This was July 13, 1838. Another record I found was a probate record uh, of the division of the state of Jesse Brown. It took several years after he died. He died in 1833. So by 1830, 1842, the property is still in probate. And this is what it says. We, the undersigned commissioners appointed to the Honorable Probate Court, uh, County of, of Wilkeson, at the March term, 1842, to praise the personal property of Jesse Brown deceased and to take division of the slaves. And there's a list of slaves and a division. And there's three divisions. One to one division is to Wilson Brown, one division is to, to the other son, Thomas Brown, and one division is to Eliza Brown. And just as they said in the depositions, the slaves to William Brown, Wilson Brown, were Rose, Patsy, Jane, Kitty, that would be Catherine, Sookie, William and Phil, and they each were praised at $450. So that would be the same family that she purchased and to uh, work the Brown Plantation. When he died, they were divided up among the three children. Also on that list, and this is very important, Millie Turner said her mother was named Sookie Jackson, and her father was named Grundy. Also on that list, if you go down, there's 15 on the list. Number 13 is a man named Grundy. So Phil and Sookie on here, but there's also a Grundy on here. So by uh, 18, if I go to 1870, 1870 was the first census that we were on the census. Uh, I don't have I don't have any other records of my family. I'll come back later and say uh, of a record I found. But just doing this, this research, in the 1870 census, there's a, ja a Susan Jackson, and we and some of you may know that Susan is a name that's often used for Sookie. 
Susan Jackson and a Kathy Connell. She had a daughter named Kathy or Catherine. And there's an Adam Jackson. So Adam Jackson and Grundy Jackson, the same person. The children are Mary, Millie, Hannah, and Lucy. So by 1870, the evidence is there that Suki and Phil, Phil either died or he was sold away. I think he, he passed. And then Suki Jackson moved in with Adam Jackson, or was moved in with Adam with Adam or Grundy Jackson. And the daughter in 1870 was Millie Jackson, who later married a Robert Turner, and she becomes Millie Turner. So bottom line, her testimony was true, accurate, and it – uh, it, it has revealed all that information to me about who my fam- who the families were, all the way back at this point to 1838. This is absolutely amazing that you were able to take the information from the pension file and go all the way back, but you proved it. You proved that Millie. Turner's information was correct, that she knew what Absolutely. she was talking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's, you know, I'm, I'm seeing comments in the in the uh, chat room, and, I mean, there, there are questions that are going all the way back to the enlistment of Philip Brown. Uh, and so I want to ask you those questions because they have come up in the in the in the chat, but then I want you to just tell us, I mean, how you're feeling about all of this. So first of all, the question is, did you find any information to tell you how Philip Brown McQuirta joined the USCT? Well, there's a census, there's an 1890 census for veterans and widows, veterans and widows, I believe it's called, that list for each county, all of the uh, Union Army soldiers, when they came around in May of 1890, to uh, that's when the pension started, then they went around town to everyone they knew that was a veteran in the Union Army, and they uh, put them on the list so they could get a pension, so they made the list. But I do know that uh, in his uh, compiled service records, that was, first of all, there was a bounty of $100 uh, for signing up. He... Uh, Philip Brown had, um, as I said earlier, he had been to New Orleans. No, I didn't get to. I haven't gotten to that part yet. But anyway, he went to New Orleans, which would have been 120 miles away, along with a lot of men from Wilkinson County, to sign up for different um, uh, army. Some, some, a few signed up for for the Navy. But when the war started, uh, Port Hudson is about 40 miles from uh, Woodville, and you could hear. The the, the uh, cannons going off at, in that fight at Port Hudson, which was a fight to secure the lower lower end of the Mississippi. There was a fight going on at the upper end of Mississippi. That was Grant at Fixburg. So Port Hudson was a very important battle during the Civil War because they were, the Union Army was trying to break through and surround uh, the Confederates at Vicksburg. But anyway, there was a lot of men who... Uh, coming off the plantation who took the bounty and signed up for the um, Civil War. Now, he signed up first in the, I didn't get into that, into the, uh, what they call the Corps Afrique, 
She was in the 9th Corps Afrique, which became the 81st uh, Infantry U.S. Colored Troops, U.S. Colored Infantry. Um, so there were a lot of men from Wilkinson County. On the list of 1890 veterans, there's about 30 names. But I have found in the Freedmen's Records another, at least another 20 or 30 names. So that's at least 60 names or more of uh, people who were, uh, uh, at least fought in the Civil War. I think there were probably a lot more than that. If someone was killed in the war, they never had a pension file. So these would have been the names of people who had actually received a pension. Right. So, so, so he they, escaped yes, they were, from the plantation? No, the plantation was in chaos when they were uh, – most of the uh, uh, the men had gone away. Most of the Confederates had gone away to fight. So okay. some, some escaped, some walked off. Things were in chaos in that period, during that period of time. So he would have mm-hmm. been able to get to, uh, to go and enlist. Everybody didn't enlist, but some enlisted. And mm-hmm. he enlisted, um, uh, like I said, New Orleans was 120 miles away. And as I'll tell you later, he had a familiarity with New Orleans because he had been in New Orleans. So um, there were several men who were uh, joining the uh, U.S. color troops to fight for their own freedom. Plus, they were on a plantation where they were getting nothing, and they had to feed and take care of their families. So I believe that they were uh, wanted to join the fight for their own freedom. Mm-hmm. Okay. So tell us more. Okay. So uh, I think I, I think there's a book I sent on the screen uh, that, that you showed on your uh, on the site. Um, cases argued before the Mississippi Supreme Court. In researching um, Philip McQuader, uh and actually in researching Elizabeth Steele, who was the Elizabeth Burden, became Elizabeth Brown, became Elizabeth Steele, she's the last owner. In researching her, I found she had a court case. It was called and it's it's in that volume called Cases Argued Before the Mississippi Supreme Court. It was called Elizabeth H. Steele versus the Corporation of Woodville. So when I found that, I said, what is this? And this was just in searching her name. Her son um, was sick. He had consumption, which was TB, tuberculosis, which was uncurable. He sold his property in uh, the 1850, early 1850s, and moved to Bayou Sierra, which is in Louisiana and West Feliciana, for a while. Then he, he went to New Orleans. He didn't stay there, but he was there trying to see doctors and regain his health. And finally, he was headed to Texas to try to uh, live out his life or get a cure for his TB. He took. He sold all his plantation. He sold all the enslaved people he had with him to his brother. He took three of them with him um, as cooks, I guess, and as personal service. That is what this case, Elizabeth H. Steele versus the Corporation of Woodville, is about. And let me just read it in, in the legal terms. It says, if an invalid sells his mansion house and other property or the domicile of his birth, and leave that domicile for the purpose of traveling so as to regain his health or prolong his health, 
and abruptly afterwards dies on his travel without having acquired any permanent abode at any place, he has not thereby lost the domicile of his birth, notwithstanding he may have led, had no expectation of returning to it. So what that means is his mother and his other brother, Tom Brown, were suing for the probate of his estate to be a Mississippi probate and not a Louisiana or some other probate. And so what is the importance of this? The importance of this is that in this summary, and this is a summary, it says Thomas Brown, a witness. Well, first of all, let me say this. After 1842, Division of Slaves, I didn't find any other records that showed uh, under John Wilson Brown where the McQuaida family was. And then I read the this case, Elizabeth Steele versus the Corporation of Woodville, and this is what it says. Thomas Brown, a witness for complaint, stated that he knew the testator very well. That was his younger brother. The testator sold his land in Wilkinson County to Mr. Yerby about the 1st of October, 1856, and his slaves to witness. Witness purchase amounted to $16,000 and to secure which he gave a deed and trust on land and slaves in Wilkinson County. So there it is. When John Wilson Brown uh, sold his plantation to a Mr. Yerby, he sold all of the slaves on his plantation to his brother, Thomas Brown, for $16,000. Now, the details of the case are also in the probate records. And let me just read one of the probate, probate records. That all of the estate property and effects of John Wilson Brown at the time of his death was in the state of Mississippi, county of Mississippi, or in transition with the exception of a Negro named Philip left with John L. Lee in New Orleans. So that's one of the people who testified in the court case that Philip Brown, at the age of 12, was left in New Orleans when John Wilson Brown went to Texas and died. So this is a, just an example of if we do the detailed searching, we'll find evidence of our family in court records, in different books, all over the place. So it mentions Philip Brown and um, Lydia and Eliza, which were the other two that he took with him. After the he died, they were returned to uh, Wilkeson County. So Philip Brown, or Philip McQuader, was taken to New Orleans and left in New Orleans. So he, when he went back to enlisted in New Orleans, he had been to New Orleans before. So he knew the city. He knew how to get there, and he knew how to get how to how to leave there. So that's what's important about that court case. And I haven't gone through all the documents, all the detailed documents, but the few documents I've gone through testify that he was the one who was left in New Orleans with John L. Lee. This is just amazing. And you're saying that that Civil War pension file pointed you in the direction that led you to all these other records. Absolutely. Because, as you know, Bernice, unless you have the um, – unless you know the last owner, and once you can trace that last owner's name, and if you know that plantation name, 
And you can start to trace that family, and we can get the records of our families inside their records. So this mm-hmm. a case like this would have meant nothing to me unless I knew which name to look for and uh, the time period we're dealing in, the place, all that then becomes familiar um, once you know that. So the key, the key, the gateway, I call it the gateway to the plantation records is to know the last owner, the place, and the names that you're looking for. Now, in all the, the probate records in Mississippi, the wills and the probate records, you're only going to get um, – you're going to get what's called a slave list. You're only going to get first names. So you have to know the first names of everybody that you're looking for. You have to know the first name and the approximate age. Once you know that, then you can compile, and I compile all mine on these large spreadsheets, compile everybody who's on that plantation, the names, because those are all going to be cousins and they're going to intermarry, and compile those names, track the ages for every document you get. Some Get to the 1870 census. They'll have last names, then track backwards. So you can track up and back, up and down until you know absolutely who was on these large plantations, who married who, what the ages were, and then you can get all the details about what they went through in their life and how they got to that uh, particular uh, plantation, if they were sold, who they were sold by. You track the family of the owners. You track the mothers and fathers. You track the sisters and cousins. I mean, there's about 20 names that I was tracking to try to find what plantation they came off and who, who they were sold to. I, I'm telling you, people are learning tonight. You have really shown everyone how to really conduct a, a genealogical study of your family. And you studied the, the whole community, basically, to get yes. to where you were able to go with this yes. this whole uh, research uh, strategy. So let's go back for a minute because I want to hear, did the family, did the minor children, although they were adults in 1930, did they get the money? Okay. I look for probably three months for anybody in the family who could tell me that we had a great-great-grandfather who fought in the Civil War. And for a while, I could find no one. Mm-hmm. Then I began to look more and more and more, asked my mother for some names. I contacted one of my cousins in New Orleans. She said, uh, one of our aunts probably knows. One of our aunts probably knows. I called her and talked to her. Her name is Patsy, by the way. She's in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. She said, yes, her grandmother did receive a pension in 1930. And I have a record that says that was in the pension file that said the amount of money it was, so it would be split by age between the three. So, yes, I have found family members who have corroborated that they did receive their pension. Wow. Oh, my goodness. This is so wonderful. And there's a comment uh, in the chat room from P.L. Newt stating that I would love to see his spreadsheet. I live in the DFW Metroplex and may show up for one of the Dallas African-American special interest groups. Great. So there's a, there's a, there's a question in the comments. Search in the plantation. Is there any records of Hugh Davis' plantation? 
This is from Susan. She says that she can't locate the plantation. And what about where former slaves in Woodville, Mississippi, were buried? Well, the second question first. There are there are always family graveyards. Um, so we have uh, in Wixom, Mississippi, for instance. There's a map of a uh, section map. It's called, and inside that section map, you see a little plus. That plus shows the graveyards. So there's a there's a steel graveyard, steel family, a brown graveyard. All their relatives, Leatherman, all the names I've just called. There's a graveyard. There's a Stewart graveyard. As a, and, they, and there's several church graveyards. They usually are buried in the church graveyard, but they may 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 be buried somewhere else. But normally it's near a church, the church graveyard. The first okay. one I have not searched. I have not. Uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know the answer to that one. Um, okay. When I search my family, it takes me <laughs> a year sometimes to go down the trail. So I have not searched all of Wilson counties. So I don't know, but. Um, the approach would be to find out who the last owner was and uh, go into the probate records uh, and search from there. Okay. There's another question coming out of the chat. Uh, have you checked the payment roster on Family Search? The pay- pension payment roster, I think, is what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. There was no pension payment roster because the pension was not granted in a timely fashion, it was granted in one lump sum. They didn't draw the $8 a month or $12 a month. Uh, Patsy uh, Williams was supposed to draw $12 a month, but she died. So there is no regular payment roster, monthly payments. Uh, what I see is a lump sum that was granted in 1930, which was the accumulation of all the pension that they would do from when the uh, when, when he died up until they reached the age of 16. And I did the calculation, and it's it's about right. They might have achieved them it's a few pennies, right. but yeah. Right. Yes. Now we have a, a caller, uh, area code five hundred four. Do you have a question or a comment? <clears throat> yes, I just want to say I'm enjoying the uh, information Mr. Blake's has given and the strategies uh, he's uh, showing us we could use. Uh, there is a website called historicwoodville.org, and there's a book written entitled "The Plantation World." of Wilkerson County, 1792 to 2012, written by Stella Pitts and Ernesto Caldera. Now, it says it's sold out, but I spoke with her, and she said the new edition is coming out in March of this year. I think it's a coffee table size, uh, the plantation world of Wilkerson County, and you can see that on historicwoodville.org. Okay, historicwoodville.org. Yes, and, and they can uh, find and they can find the information. Well, they can find several uh, books as it relates to Wilkerson County, uh, and uh, but particularly this book looking at the various plantations that existed with pictures and the histories of the plantation and the owners. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Okay, uh, if we don't have any callers, uh, chatters, do any of you have any questions before we close out the show? Or do you, for that matter, have, have additional more? information? Sure. Yes, I have time for one more story. Of course you do. 
Yeah, one of the pictures that should be shown on the screen is a plaque in front of the Wilson County Courthouse of William Grant Steele. Now, I passed out by that plaque for a long time, and it never meant anything to me. And then um, the name Steele, which I've been talking about all night, Elizabeth Steele, uh, came up. And so um, I started researching William Grant Steele. Now, as it says, William Grant Steele was born in Woodville on May 11th, 1895. So William Grant Steele, as far as I know, is not a relative of mine. I haven't researched enough to know. So I'm not uh, I'm not telling this story to claim that. I'm telling this story to show the interrelated community that that existed in plantation times. The name Steele, I'm not sure if it came up that Steele Plantation or, or it was a neighboring plantation. It could have been a neighboring plantation. It could have been in the same plantation. I have not researched to find the name. But the, the story of William Steele, William Grant Steele goes like this. Uh, William Grant Steele... The first deal was Duncan Steele. He supposedly had uh, some overseer was the father of him, a white overseer, and uh, by a um, by one of the slave people on the plantation. So Duncan Steele was born about 1838 and had a wife named Mary. They had a son, William Grant Steele Sr., who was born in 1871. William Grant Steele Sr. actually went to College. He went to Alcorn A&M College, where a lot of the Mississippi graduates go in 1892. He majored in music and mathematics. Teaching position at uh, Alabama, in Alabama, and he met Carrie Lena Fambro, who was born in 1872. She had a degree from Atlanta University, and they taught in Alabama. After they were married, he decided to move back to Woodville, William Grant, William Grant Steele Sr. had a brass band in Woodville. He had the only brass band in Woodville, and he was part owner of a grocery store. Which, when I saw that, I just, that, that's amazing. I, nobody ever said that. I never knew that. I didn't even know that in 1892, you had a family with two college graduates. And they were from Woodville. <laughs> now, he he... His son, William Grant Steele Sr., the composer, was born in 1895. William Grant Steele died three um, three months later. Um, but William Grant Steele Sr., according to the biographies I read, and there's probably a dozen books on him, he taught music and mathematics when he came back to Woodville at Chapel Church. Chapel Church is the home church of the McQuaders. And he taught at Stewart Church, according to the records. And that is absolutely amazing to me. So I don't know which plantation he came off, but he was in the same neighborhood teaching there. He also taught in Gloucester. Some people from Mississippi write in Woodville. Gloucester is another small town. When he died, um, then Carrie Steele, his mother, took William Grant Steele and moved to Little Rock, Arkansas. And she married a, a man named George, named Charles Shepherson. Now I had Charles Shepherson on one of my spreadsheets because a friend of mine is the great great nephew of Charles Shepherson, and we were researching his family one day, and lo and behold, I have on there Charles Shepherson, Carrie Shepherson, and 
William Shepherdson. So he was William Grant Steele. No, his name was still William Grant Steele. His name was William in the house. They may have had Shepherdson by his name. But the story, I'm telling this story because the communities we live in are so interrelated that I, I was just amazed, first of all, in the facts about William Grant Steele and his family coming off either the steel plantation or nearby plantation, and then finding a friend of mine who was the mentor for William Grant Steele. William Grant Steele went on to uh, compose music for people like W.C. Handy. He was part of the Harlem Renaissance with Langston Hughes, uh, Uri Blake, all these great musicians that William Grant Steele worked with. Um, and William Grant Steele was actually born in Woodville, Mississippi. So that's a story about the related community. When we dig back, and, and and get the real history, then we'll have a chance to one day write a lot of this history and recorrect all this history, like I did with that field representatives report, and tell our own story. And so, Bernice, I have one more piece I want to read. Do I have time? Of course you do. Okay. And this is a special guest who wants to tell his story. My name is Philip McQuader, and this is my story. I was born in 1844 on the steel plantation in Woodville, Wilson County, Mississippi. My father's name was also Phil McQuader. He was born in 1802 in Virginia, and my mother's name was Suki McQuader. She was born in 1807 in Virginia. They were both enslaved Africans who were sold into Mississippi's chattel slavery. On July 12, 1838, my parents and their children were purchased for $1,356 by Eliza Brown from her father, Wilson Brown's estate, and moved to her late husband, Jesse Brown's plantation. Eliza Brown had two sons, John Wilson Brown and Thomas Brown. After the death of her husband, Jesse Brown, his plantation and slaves were divided, and my family was given to his son, John Wilson Brown. I was the youngest child of Phil and Sookie McQuaid's children born on the Brown plantation. My brothers and sisters were Rose, Betsy, Jane, Captain, William, and John Tyler. After the death of Jesse Brown, Eliza Brown married Nathaniel Steele, and we were moved to the Steele Plantation. My father died shortly after I was born, and my mother, Suki, then lived with Grundy Jackson and had several children, including my half-sister, Millie Jackson, who later married Robert Turner. John Wilson Brown contracted TB, and his health started failing badly. He sold his plantation and he sold my family to his brother, Thomas Brown. He kept a few of his slaves, Lydia, Eliza, and me, to act as his personal servants while he traveled around to Bayou Sarah and New Orleans trying to regain his health. In 1857, he left me in New Orleans with John Lee and went to Texas with Lydia and Eliza, where he died as soon as he arrived. I was then returned to the steel plantation. In around 1860, I married Patsy Williams of the steel plantation. Patsy was the daughter of Alfred and Sophia Williams, who were also in the steel place. We were married by customary law, lived together, and had our first child, a daughter, Suki, in 1863. About that time, I could hear the Union Army cannons booming at nearby Fort Hudson. I went back to New Orleans and enlisted in the 9th Corps Afrique, which became the 81st U.S. Colored Infantry. My regiment did not fight in the battle at Fort Hudson, but we were assigned to garrison duty in New Orleans. I mustered out of the Army in 1865 and returned my, to my family in Woodville. 
I worked on several plantations after the war in Woodville, including the Steel Place, the Jerks Place, and the Chambers Place. My health suffered terribly after the war due to the cold, sickness, and diseases. In 1890, the Union Army began offering a pension to veterans who fought in the war. I applied for and received a pension of $8 per month for my arthritis and heart valve problem. By 1899, my wife and I now had 14 children. The youngest ones, Taylor, Hannah, and Amanda, will receive a share of my pension if me and Patsy should pass along. My health is failing badly now, and Patsy is sickly also. I have left evidence for one of my descendants to follow. I have named my oldest son, Phil, after his grandfather, and my daughter, Suki, after her grandmother. Suki named her daughter, Sophia, after Patsy's mother. And I named my another daughter, Millie, after my, ha- my sister, Millie Turner. There are also records from the plantation owners who bought and sold my family. There are Army records for my enlistment and time in the Army. Also, there are pension records from when I applied for and received my pension. I hope that someday one of my children or grandchildren or maybe a great-great-grandson will tell my story so that we will all know our family history and our life in Mississippi during the awful days of slavery. And so I and so that I will always be remembered. Wow. That's beautiful. That is wonderful. I'm almost speechless. Thank you so much for sharing this story with us tonight. This is this is just amazing. So any closing remarks? I think you just you just told. Well, I'm getting wild. You know, you told his story and you told it well. No, I I, I want to go back to if I go back to um, one of your shows, Bernice, uh, May twenty fourth, twenty thirteen, and you had a guest, Laura Lanier, and she said hopefully she was speaking on Mississippi. She said hopefully. Um, some of the Mississippi research will come out of the woodworks. That's in her words. And you said, you said, uh, yes, I've been looking all over for people to talk about their research in Mississippi. So I think that's I, that show moved me to accept your invitation because you had asked me a couple times. Accept your invitation because um, with the information I've shared, uh, people in the McQuaida family who. A lot of them have only the eight. I've seen that they only have the 1880 census to go by. They now have their gateway back into the plantation records so they can complete their studies. So that's why I was um, glad, even though my research is not complete, glad to come on and share with you what um, what I have been studying for uh, on, on the McQuaida family. And thank you so, so very much. And, and I would like to hope that Laura is smiling right now to know that she inspired you to research your family in Woodville. And, oh, this is this is just amazing. And so I'd just like to just say to everyone, and especially to you, thank you so much. And for everyone else, please remember, folks, your ancestors left footprints. You just heard about all of those footprints that were left for a descendant to share the story tonight. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you 
through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives, and don't forget beyond. So you can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and the AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy and Educational Services, LLC, and my website is www.geniebroots.com. And if any of you need assistance in getting your Civil War pension file, please give me a call. Well, I look forward to you all joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone, and good night, Al. Thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. Thank you.